Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me just thank you for the warm welcome that I've received. It's been a joy to be with you and to worship with you this morning. It's always a joy to come during a missions conference to hear the reminder of texts like Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is confronted with the holiness of God and says, Here am I, send me. These are familiar texts, but they're ones that we need to be reminded of all the time. John chapter 3, I want to read just one verse, and this is a very familiar verse, perhaps the most familiar verse in the entire scriptures. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Our great God, we do thank You once again that Your Word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, it is the Word that You have promised to bless. It is the Word that Your Spirit uses as His sword to do His work in us. And that is what we would ask You for this morning. Please take Your living Word and by Your Spirit, Convict us of sin and train us in righteousness. Thoroughly equip us for every good work. Father, we thank you and we ask that in so doing, you would also glorify your Son in our midst. And it is in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Before moving to Greenville, I had an office right next door to... Uh, a man who had grown up in the Colorado Rockies. He was a good friend. He, we taught alongside each other. We were colleagues together. And he told me a story about growing up in the Rocky Mountains. He grew up in a beautiful area right, right in the mountains, a beautiful small town right there. And at that time in particular, there weren't too many people out there. It's since gotten a little more built up. But he said one of the things that he remembers most vividly about growing up in the Rockies was... Uh, around the time he learned to drive, when he first got his driver's license. And he said the thing that bothered him about driving around the mountains wasn't so much the sharp corners or, or anything else. It was, it was the, the tourists who would come. He said the problem was you, you'd be driving along, and you'd be driving perhaps with one of your friends, and you'd get stuck behind someone who wasn't used to the mountains, and they, they wanted to slow down and, and look over every vista. They wanted to to, to be sure that they caught all the, all the scenery, that they really took in the mountains. They stopped to take pictures and do other things like that. And he said, for those of us who grew up around there, it was, it was uh, infuriating. We were always annoyed by these outsiders who came in. Well, he went off to college, and his parents moved around the time he was in school. And so when he came back, it wasn't for another 15 years or so, and his parents were no longer living there, and He was coming back to visit friends, and he said, my perspective completely changed. I hadn't been there in 15 or 20 years. And I realized that every turn, I was slowing down. I was stopping and wanting to take pictures. He said, I I pulled up to the house that I had grown up in, and, 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 and it was this amazing postcard laid out in front of me in the backyard. I couldn't believe what I had missed You see, that's often the way we are when it comes to the Scriptures. These wonderful truths, these glorious heights, 
of scriptural revelation are often lost to us because we're too familiar with them. So I'm taking you today to John chapter 3, verse 16, and this is perhaps the most familiar verse in all the Bible. It's a verse that even if you don't know the scriptures, you may be familiar with. You may have seen someone hold up this reference at a sporting event. This, this, is, a, this is a verse that Martin Luther said is the Bible in miniature. It contains the greatest truths encapsulated in all the Scriptures. Now, the context of this verse is worth giving our attention to before we actually look at the the words themselves. The context, of course, is the Gospel of John's presentation of Jesus Christ as the Word made flesh. In fact, in this verse... There will, they, he will draw upon some of the words from that prologue, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Now John begins his gospel that way, and he ends his gospel with a purpose statement. He tells us why the gospel was written. He said there were all kinds of things that I could have written about Jesus, what He did and said, the miracles He performed. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you may have life in His name. So that's the broad context. The broad context is the whole Gospel of John, what John sets out to show us about Jesus and His intent in teaching us these things about Jesus. The narrower context, of course, comes in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus has a famous encounter with a Pharisee named Nicodemus who came to him at night. And Jesus spoke to him, and the words that he used to Nicodemus' mind were very difficult to understand. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And as Nicodemus begins to probe further as to what Jesus means by this idea of being born again... Jesus reiterates, you have to be born again or you can't see the kingdom of God. In fact, what you need is to be born by the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. You need to experience this new birth, this regeneration by the Holy Spirit in order to enter into my kingdom. And then as the conversation progresses and as Nicodemus has further questions, Jesus then says this about himself referring back to the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus connects this new birth with the eternal life that's found in Him as the Son of Man to be lifted up. And that brings us to this little familiar verse. I want to draw your attention to two major contentions in the text, two major points that this text drives home to us and that we need driven home to us, even perhaps in the midst of our familiarity. The first major point of the text deals with the love of God the Father. Look at how the verse begins. God so loved the world. Now, God's love is 
a popular theme today. In fact, there are many people who have no familiarity with the Bible at all and no real concern to learn about the Bible or to learn about Jesus at all, but they, they, they are convinced somehow that God loves them. And, and sometimes that's how they'll begin. I know that God is a God of love. And, and sometimes there are even Christians who will begin this way with, with the love of God. And that is, in one sense, how John begins... And it's, a, it's an attractive theme to us today because we assume we're, we're, we're in a culture that we're, we're encouraged to love ourselves. And so we assume that if I love myself, God must love me as well. And therefore, that must be a primary teaching of the scriptures. Now, it is a term that's found throughout the Gospel of John uh, quite a bit. John is referred to in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved and John, in one of his later letters, says this, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In fact, if you go through the Gospel of John, seven times John talks about love. Seven of those times it's about God the Father's love for God the Son. There are another additional 12 times that he speaks of love, describing how the triune God loves Jesus' disciples. So you have God the Father's love for the Son, God's love for Jesus' disciples. There are five times in John's Gospel where he explains how Jesus' disciples must love Christ, and four times where it speaks about the disciples' love for one another. But amidst all those descriptions of love and all those uses of the term love, which is a prominent theme in John... This is the one occasion where it speaks of God's love, not for His Son, not even for the disciples, but it says God so loved the world. And that's really the shocking thing about this first statement. It's not that it speaks about the love of God, but it speaks about God's love, it says, for the world. What what does this mean? Well, What it means, first of all, and the most obvious thing that would have been clear to any original hearer, including a man like Nicodemus, is that what this text is reminding us of is that God's love is not simply for the Jewish people. In the Old Testament, there are a number of occasions where God speaks of His love for His chosen people, for ethnic Israelites. And this is certainly expanding beyond that, and that would have been shocking to some of the initial readers. If you read the Jewish rabbis from around this time and a little bit later, they're very clear about the fact that God loves them, but He doesn't love the Gentiles. And this text is reminding us, no, God loves Jew and Gentile alike. Now, there's another surprising feature of this. Not only is it saying that God's love extends both to Jews and to Gentiles, but this is picking up on a term that's used earlier in the prologue of John's Gospel. In John 1, verses 9 and 10, here's what it says. The world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. See, at the beginning of the Gospel of John... John reminds us that Christ is the creator of all things, and yet we, his creatures, as human beings, are fallen sinners. Because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and because of our own 
disobedience. The Bible says that though we are created by God, we are by nature objects of wrath. The Bible teaches us that as human beings, we're fallen creatures. We're creatures who have rebelled against our Creator and, in fact, whose hearts are bent away from our Creator. The Scriptures teach us that to the pure, all things are pure, but to the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences have been defiled. You perhaps know those words that Paul gives in Romans, that verdict about the human race. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it's shocking here that in speaking of God's love, it speaks of God's love to Jew and Gentile, and it speaks of God's love poured out on creatures who had rebelled against Him. Creatures who were and are by nature sinners. God so loved the world, the text tells us. Now when we think about that and we try to understand the depths of God's love, we have to think in biblical terms. When the New Testament wants to show us the fullest extent of God's love, it doesn't just point us to the way in which God has worked in our lives, although that is indeed an expression of God's love. The fact that we are here this morning is an expression of God's love for us. But no, what, what the Bible does is it expresses the love of God by showing us the fact that God gave His only Son. You see this next Clause, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That's common language in the Scriptures. It's used elsewhere by Paul in Romans chapter 8. And it's referring, of course, to an Old Testament text from Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, the Bible records for us Abraham's test, where God tested him by telling him, to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Perhaps you're familiar with that passage. The Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him on the place where I will show you. And so Abraham takes his son Isaac and they go to the mountain that the Lord's pointed out and Abraham has all the sacrificial paraphernalia with him and there's that poignant moment right at the base of the mountain where they leave the servants behind, where Isaac looks at his father and says, I see the the wood and the other implements for sacrifice, but but where's where's the lamb? And Abraham has to look his son in the eye and say, God will provide the lamb. And they ascend up to the top of the mountain, and Isaac is tied down to the altar. Abraham raises the knife. He's about to kill his son in obedience to God's command. And the Lord, of course, stops him. But the Lord's words are the words that are picked up here and the words that are picked up elsewhere in the Scriptures. He says, Now I know that you love me because you've not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 32, when he's describing the love of God for his people, he said, 
he who did not spare his own son, using that language from Genesis 22, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not together along with him freely give us all things? There's a little book written by a theologian, not necessarily a theologian I would recommend in the totality of his work, but he wrote this little memoir. His name was Nicholas Wolterstaff. He was a theologian at Yale University, and he wrote this little book in the late 80s about his son, and it's called Lament for a Son. He had a son who in his 20s died in a a tragic mountain climbing accident, and right, right at the beginning of the book, here's what he says. He says, if someone asks me at a party or somewhere else, Who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. He says this, I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. You see, this is what the text is reminding us of, that God loved the world, Jew and Gentile. God shows His love for sinners in that He gave His only Son. I want to just pause there for a moment and ask you if you're a Christian, if you're aware of this reality. It's so easy for us to question the love of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God. And when Paul is pressed to his limits, what he says is he's the one who did not spare his only son. And when John is is reaching the height of of his presentation of the gospel in this Bible in miniature. He says, Oh, God so loved the world that he, he gave his only son. Now, there's other theological language here that's not reflected as clearly in the English Standard Version language that has to do with the procession of the Father, or of the Son from the Father in all eternity. And you'll perhaps know in the King James, it says only begotten Son, and that's significant language. But what this picks up on here is the, the uniqueness of the Son, the, the, the onlyness of the Son, like Isaac, the only son of Abraham. And if all this verse taught us, if the only truth in this verse was that our Creator God loved Jew and Gentile sinners such that He sent His only Son. If all it taught us was about the glorious incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if all we had was this astounding mystery, then that itself would be world-changing that itself would, would shift our paradigm in terms of how we understand God. That would, that would bring comfort to us. That would bring awe to us. That would drive us, should drive us to worship the Lord. But that's not all this verse teaches. Because in fact, what we learn from this verse is that the incarnation is not merely the ultimate expression of the love of God, born out of God's love. It's actually the means of our salvation from death and punishment and sin because we are in the world and the world did not know Him. This incarnation of the Son, this God sending His only Son out of His great love actually actually is the source of our salvation, which brings us to the second major point of this text, which is the saving benefit 
given in this gift of love. Now, I want us to look carefully at the saving benefit as it's described for us in this verse. The first thing that is described is that the saving benefit of God's gift of His Son is the removal of a curse. Look at what it says. Whoever believes in Him should not perish. He's taken something away. Now, this too is a significant biblical theme. The Bible makes it clear that all of us are sinners and we're sinners by nature. David says, in sin my mother conceived me in Psalm 51. And we see this worked out in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall of Adam and Eve. The the sin just gets worse and worse and worse. And so that just a few pages over in your Bible in Genesis chapter 6, it says, the Lord God looked down from heaven and He saw that all the thoughts of man's heart were always evil all the time. That's the extent and scope of sin after the fall. And, And what the Bible tells us is, that that sin merits judgment. We must be judged by God because God is a just God. And ultimately, that justice for sins committed culminates in what the Bible calls the second death or refers to as hell. In Revelation 20, it tells us that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And and as as unpopular and and perhaps uncomfortable as that biblical doctrine is, Jesus speaks about it over and over again in his ministry. Jesus is not vague about the doctrine of eternal punishment. He's clear about it. He's as clear about that as anything he teaches. And yet, what does the Bible also teach us? The, The Bible teaches us that that judgment in the future leads to a very natural, in one sense, fear of death that all of us have. And so both this eternal death that the Bible says is due to us for sin and this fear of death that the Bible says all of us live with, even if we want to push it to the side or distract ourselves in all kinds of ways, the Bible's clear about it. The apostles say that Jesus Christ is the one who's appointed as the judge of the living and the dead to him all men must give an account. But, but the Bible also says that in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I'll read here from Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the curse that we are under that works itself out in the fear of death and works itself out ultimately in eternity in judgment and punishment. The book of Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that to face judgment. The text tells us that in and through Jesus Christ, those who are in Him should not perish. That's the first great blessing and it is indeed a great blessing. Forgiveness of sins, confident hope for the future, and a purpose and meaning in our life right now. And that gets us to the second blessing, and that's a positive one. Should not perish, the text tells us, but have eternal life. 
Jesus will later say to his followers these beautiful words. We often hear them in funerals. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And so there is this future hope of glory that all who are in Christ have. It is the removal of a curse in the future, but it is also a gift of a place prepared by Jesus to be with Him so that the Apostle Paul can say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And Peter can say, I'm about to take off the early tent, earthly tent of my body, but, but I'm going to be with Christ. And that is far better. But, but even right now, the Bible says this eternal life works itself out in our lives. Just as eternal punishment works itself out in the fear of death, eternal life works itself out now in a new kind of life. Uh, Peter says we are now partakers of the divine nature. We, we begin to have different priorities. We have hope and meaning and comfort in our lives given to us by Christ. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to those who are in Christ and He works in us. He intercedes for us with groanings that words can't express. We have Jesus Christ as our great high priest who stands there and, and hears our prayers and, and, and upholds us by His power. We have power in the fight against sin because of this new birth by the Holy Spirit. Eternal life we receive in Christ. And that then leads us to consider to whom God gives this eternal life and takes away this punishment. We already know from the beginning of the verse that the ones who receive eternal life and have this eternal punishment removed from them, it's not an ethnic, it's not about ethnic distinctions, it's not about Jew or Gentile or any other ethnic barrier that we might put up. It's, it's given to sinners. We know that because he uses this term world. World means Jew and Gentile. World means sinners. No, what does it say? It says that those who receive this gift of eternal life receive it by believing in Him. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's by faith alone, the Bible says. It's not by performing certain rituals. It's not given to those whose good works outweigh their bad works. I was talking to someone Friday night, and he was relaying a conversation he'd had with a friend that he'd known for decades. And they finally were able to get down to business spiritually. And the, the friend said to him, well, I, I think I've, I've done a little more good than bad. Well, the Bible says that will, that will not satisfy the justice of a holy God. No, what does the Scripture say? By grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. It's to those, it says in verse 16, to those who believe. This is the call that attaches itself to the announcement of God's love. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, what does that mean to believe? Well, traditionally, it's been parsed out in different ways. Certainly, you have to have a knowledge of what Christ has done and who He is. 
But we'd say that that knowledge, that factual knowledge, isn't all that you need. You have to understand and agree that these things are true. You're you're attaching yourself to these facts. And and you're committing yourself. You're actually entrusting your forgiveness to Jesus Christ and not to anything else. It's, it's, it's It's the instrument by which we grab a hold of Jesus Christ, saving faith. Whoever believes in Him should not perish. And this is, I want to say this very clearly, this is your only hope in life and in death if you're an unbeliever, if you are apart from Christ. The Bible is very clear about the fact that it's only through faith in Him that you can be saved. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. It's not a technique, it's not another person or a new circumstance that you might put yourself into. No, no, it's through, it's through faith alone in Christ alone. So one of the calls, one of the clear calls of this verse, if you're not in Christ, is come to Jesus. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out and I will raise him up on the last day. I want to say to you, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus offers Himself to sinners. He offers Himself to sinners who come to Him in saving faith. He promises that He won't cast you out. and He promises that you should not perish, but will have eternal life in Him. So we say, along with the words of the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. That's what it means to Believe in Him. And then for those of you who are in Christ, particularly in this season in which we're giving special attention to God's work outside the walls of this church and this missions conference, remember, as you proclaim Christ to others, that same Christ who promises that whoever believes in Him shall not perish also promises to be with you always, even to the end of the age. So so that as we fulfill the great commission that Jesus has given to us, we can do so with confidence. We can do so with boldness. We can do so with clarity. Because He is our Savior. He is also our King and our strength and our guide and our shepherd. It's interesting how often this is used to bolster the, the faith of God's people. When Moses is called by God to do this great work of leading the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, in Exodus chapter 3, you'll remember that Moses gives all kinds of excuses. Lord, I'm slow of speech. I'm not a great leader. I I can't possibly be the one to, to lead your people. And there's this back and forth, and the Lord makes provision for Moses and allows for Aaron to go along with him, and all these sorts of gracious things. But then finally, the last word is this. Uh, the Lord says, Moses, I will be with you. And that's it. End of discussion. And Jesus says the same thing to those who go in His name, carrying the message of the Gospel. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And as we go, what is the focal point of our message? What what should we as Christians and we as congregations uh, be focused on? 
Well, we should be focused on exactly what this text teaches us. That's why Martin Luther referred to it the way that he did. We should be focused on the same things that the Apostle Paul was focused on. You remember what Paul said. He may have been thinking about this encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus because when Paul describes his own ministry and gives marching orders for the church and for pastors within the church, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You must be born again. The old has passed away. The new has come, Paul says. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, should not perish but have eternal life. And then he says, and he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so then Paul goes on to say this, therefore we or ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. Then he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God, out of His great love for the world, sent His only Son, that those who are in Him might have reconciliation and might have, indeed, eternal life. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank You once more for the clarity of Your Word. As You speak to us, You do so in a way that is unmistakable. Father, we pray that Your word might be attended with your power, that you might draw sinners to yourself, and you might reinvigorate us for the task of being ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You have entrusted to your church this great work. May we do it in the power that Christ gives, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.